Chapter Two, Part One of the Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Teresa Downey. Chapter Two The New Life in Christ. Miss Payson was now in her twenty first year, a period which she always looked back to as a turning point in her spiritual history. The domestic influences that accompanied her childhood her early associations, and the books of devotion which she read, all conspired to imbue her with an earnest sense of divine things, and while yet a young girl, as we have seen, she publicly devoted herself to the service of her God and Saviour. For several years her piety, if marked by no special features, was still regarded by her young friends and by all who knew her as of a decided character. But during the general religious interest in the winter of 1837 through 1838, even while absorbed in solicitude for others, she began herself to question its reality. For some months I had no hope that I was a Christian, and pride made me go on, just as if I felt myself perfectly safe. Nothing could at that time have made me willing to have any eye a witness to my daily struggles, and yet she often longed for the sympathy and assistance of Christian friends, and to her unwillingness to confide in them she afterwards attributed much of the suffering that followed. I do not know exactly how I passed out of that season. But my school commenced in April, and I became so interested in it that I had less time to think of and to watch myself. The next winter most of my scholars were deeply impressed by divine things, and, of course, I could not look on without having my own heart touched. It was my privilege to spend many delightful weeks in watching the progress of minds earnestly seeking the way of life and early consecrating themselves to their Saviour. But after a while a severe reaction set in, and in the course of the summer she became careless in her religious habits, shrank from the Lord's table as a place of absolute torture, and while spending a fortnight in Boston in the fall, entirely omitted all exercises of private devotion. She had now reached a crisis which was to decide her course for life. During the winter of 1839 to 1840 she passed through very deep and harrowing exercises of soul. Her spiritual nature was shaken to its foundation, and she could say with the psalmist, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. For several months she was in a state similar to that of which the old divines depict so vividly as being under conviction. Her sense of sin, and of her own unworthiness in the sight of God, grew more and more intense and oppressive. At times she abandoned all hope, accused herself of having played the hypocrite, and fancied she was given over to hardness of heart. At length she sought counsel of her pastor, and confided to him her trouble, but he did not know exactly what to do with me. In the midst of her distress, and as its effect, no doubt, she was taken ill and confined to her room, where in solitude she passed several weeks, seeking rest and finding none. Sometimes I tried to pray, but this only increased my distress, and made me cry out for annihilation, to free me from the agony which seemed insupportable. With a single interval of comparative indifference, this state of mind continued for nearly four months. She thus describes it. It was in vain that I sought the Lord in any of the lofty pathways through which my heart wished to go. At last I found it impossible to carry on the struggle any longer alone. I would gladly have put myself at the feet of a little child, if by doing so I could have found peace. I felt so guilty and the character of God appeared so perfect in its purity and holiness that I knew not which way to turn. The sin which distressed me most of all was the rejection of the Saviour. 
This haunted me constantly, and made me fly first to one thing and then another, in hope of finding somewhere the peace which I would not accept from him. It was at this time that I kept reading over the first twelve chapters of Doddridge's Rise and Progress, the rest of the book I abhorred. So great was my agony that I can only wonder at the goodness of him who held my life in his hands, and would not permit me in the height of my despair to throw myself away. It was in this height of despair that thoughts of the infinite grace and love of Christ, which she says she had hitherto repelled, began to irradiate her soul. A sermon on his ability to save unto the uttermost deeply affected her. While listening to it, my weary spirit rested itself, and I thought, surely it cannot be wrong to think of the Saviour, although he is not mine. With this conclusion, I gave myself up to admire, to love, and to praise him, to wonder why I had never done so before, and to hope that all the great congregation around me were joining with me in acknowledging him to be chief among ten thousand, and the one altogether lovely. On going home, she could at first scarcely believe in her own identity. The feeling of peace and love to God, to all the world, was so unlike the turbulent emotions that had long agitated her soul. From this time my mind went slowly onward, examining the way step by step, trembling and afraid, yet filled with a calm contentment, which made all the dealings of God with me appear just right. I know myself to be perfectly helpless. I cannot promise to do or be anything, but I do want to put everything else aside, and to devote myself entirely to the service of Christ. Her account of this memorable experience is dated August 28th, 1840. While writing it, she adds, I have to often lay aside my pen, to sit and think over in silent wonder, the way in which the Lord has led me. How in later years she regarded certain features of this experience is not fully known. The record passed at once out of her hands, and until after her death was never seen by anyone, excepting the friend for whose eye it was written. Many of its details had, probably, faded entirely from her memory. It cannot be doubted, however, that she would have judged her previous state much less severely, would hardly have charged it with hypocrisy, or denied that the Saviour had been graciously leading her, and that she had some real love to him, before as well as after this crisis. So much may be inferred from the record itself, and from the narrative in the preceding chapter. Her tender interest in the spiritual welfare of her friends and pupils, the high tone of religious sentiment that marks her early writings, the books she delighted in, her filial devotion, the absolute sincerity of her character, all forbid any other conclusion. The indications, too, are very plain that her morbidly sensitive, melancholy temperament had much to do with this experience. Her account of it shows, also, that her mind was unhappily affected by certain false notions of the Christian life and ordinances then, and still, more or less prevalent, notions based upon a too narrow and legal conception of the gospel. Hence her shrinking from the Lord's table as a place of torture, instead of regarding it in its true character, as instituted on purpose to feed hungry souls like her own, with bread from heaven. But for all that the experience was a blessed reality, and, as these pages will attest, wrought a lasting change in her religious life. No doubt the Spirit of God was leading her through all its dark and terrible mazes. It virtually ended a conflict which the intensely proud elements of her nature rendered inevitable if she was to become a true heroine of the faith, the conflict between her master's will and her own. Her master conquered, and henceforth, to her dying hour, 
His will was the sovereign law of her existence, and its sweetest joy also. The following extracts from letters to her cousin, George E. Shipman of New York, now widely known as the founder of a foundling home at Chicago, will throw additional light upon her state of mind at this period. Mr. Shipman was the friend to whom the account of her experience already mentioned was addressed. He had just spent several weeks in Portland, and to his Christian sympathy, kindness, and counsels while there, and during the two following years, she felt herself very deeply indebted. Portland, August twenty-second, 1840 I am always wondering if anybody in the world is the better off for my being in it, and if so, I was glad of any comfort to you. I am very glad of it. I do want, I confess, the privilege of offering you sometimes the wine and oil of consolation, and if I do it in such a way as to cause pain with my unskillful hand, why, you must forgive me. Mr. So-and-so talked to me as if he imagined me a blue stocking. Just because my sister wears spectacles, folks take it for granted that I also am literary. August 25th. You ask if I find it easy to engage in religious meditation, referring in particular to that on our final rest. This is another of my trials. I cannot meditate upon anything, except, indeed, it be something quite the opposite of what I wish to occupy my mind. You know that some Christians are able, in their solitary walks and rides, to hold, all the time, communion with God. I can very seldom do this. Yesterday I was obliged to take a long walk alone, and it was made very delightful in this way, so that I quite forgot that I was alone. I am beginning to feel that I have enough to do without looking out for a great wide place in which to work and to appreciate the simple lines, the trivial round, the common task, would furnish all we ought to ask, room to deny ourselves, a road to bring us daily nearer God. Those words, daily nearer God, have an inexpressible charm for me. I long for such nearness to him, that all other objects fade into comparative insignificance, so that to have a thought, a wish, a pleasure apart from him shall be impossible. September 12th. At Sabbath school this morning, while talking with my scholars about the Lord Jesus, my heart, which is so often cold and so stupid, seemed completely melted within me, with such a view of his wonderful, wonderful love for sinners, that I almost believed I had never felt it till then. Such a blessing is worth toiling and wrestling for a whole life. If a glimpse of our Saviour here on earth can be so refreshing, so delightful, what will it be in heaven? September 17th. I have been reading today some passages from Nevin's Practical Thoughts. Perhaps you have seen them. If so, do you remember two articles headed, I Must Pray More, and I Must Pray Differently? They interested me much, because in some measure they express my own feelings. I have less and less confidence in frames, as they are called. I am glad that you think it better to have a few books and to read them over and over, for my own inclination leads me to that. One gets attached to them as to Christian friends. Do not hesitate to direct me over and over again to go with difficulties and temptations and sin to the Saviour. I love to be led there and left there. Sometimes, when the exceeding sinfulness of sin becomes painfully apparent, there is nothing else for the soul to do but to lie in the dust before God, without a word of excuse, and that feeling of abasement in his sight is worth more than all the pleasures in the world. You will believe me if I own myself tired when I tell you that I made fourteen calls this afternoon. But even the unpleasant business of call-making 
has had one comfort. Some of the friends, of whom I took leave, spoke so tenderly of him, whose name is so precious to his children, that my heart warmed toward them instantly, and I have thought it worth while to have parting hours, sad though they may be, if with them come so naturally thoughts of the Saviour. Besides, I have been thinking since I came home, that if I do not love him, it could not be so refreshing to hear unexpectedly of him. I did not know that mother had anything to do with your father's conversion, and when I mentioned it to her, she seemed much surprised, and said she did not know it herself. Pray tell me more of it, will you? I have felt that if, in the course of my life, I should be the means of leading one soul to the Saviour, it would be worth staying in this world for no matter how many years. Did you ever read Miss Taylor's display? Sister says the character of Emily there is like mine. I think so myself, save in the best point. We come now to an important change in her outward life. She had accepted an invitation to become a teacher in Mr. Persico's school in Richmond, Virginia. Mr. Persico was an Italian, a brother of the sculptor of that name, a number of whose works are seen in Washington. He early became interested in our institutions, and as soon as he was able came to this country and settled in Philadelphia as an artist. He married a lady of that city, and afterward, on account of her health, went to Richmond, where he opened a boarding and day school for girls. There were four separate departments, one of which was under the sole care of Miss Payson. Her letters to her family, written at this time, have all been lost, but a full record of the larger portion of her Richmond life is preserved in letters to her cousin, Mr. Shipman. The following extracts from these letters show with what zeal she devoted herself to her new calling, and how absorbed her heart was still in the things of God. They throw light upon some marked features of her character. Boston, September 23rd. I had, after leaving home, an attack of that terrible pain of which I have told you, and believed myself very near death. It became a serious question whether, if God should so please, I could feel willing to die there alone, for I was among entire strangers. I never enjoyed more of His presence than that night, when, sick and sad and full of pain, I felt it sweet to put myself in His hands to be disposed of in His own way. The attack referred to in this letter resembled angina pectoris, a disease to which for many years she was led to consider herself liable. Whatever it may have been, its effect was excruciating. Mother was telling me the other day, she wrote to a friend, that in her long life she had never seen an individual suffer more severe bodily pain than she had often tried to relieve in me. I remember scores of such hours of real agony. In the present instance the attack was doubtless brought on, in part at least, by mental agitation. No words, she wrote a few months later, can describe the anguish of my mind the night I left home. It seemed to me that all the agony I had ever passed through was condensed into a small space, and I certainly believed that I should die if led to a higher degree of such pain. Richmond, September 30, 1840 About twelve o'clock, when it was dark as pitch, we were all ordered to prepare for a short walk. In single file, then, out we went. It seems that a bridge had been burned lately, and so we were all to go round on foot to another train of cars. There were dozens of bright crackling bonfires, lighted at short intervals all along, and as we wound down narrow, steep, and rocky pathways, then up steps which had been rudely cut into the side of the elevated ground, and, 
as far as we could see before us could watch the long line of moving figures in all varieties of form and color my spirits rose to the very tip-top of enjoyment i wished you could have a picture of the whole scene which though one of real life was to me at least exceedingly beautiful we reached richmond at one o'clock mr Prasico was waiting for us and received us cordially when i awoke at eight o'clock i felt forlorn enough imagine if you can the room in which i opened my eyes it is in the attic is very low and has two windows my first thought was my first thought was i can never be happy in this miserable hole but in a second this wicked feeling took flight and i reproached myself for my ingratitude to him who had preserved me through all my journey and had made much of it so delightful and profitable and who still promised to be with me october second i will try to give you some account of our doings although we are not fully settled we have risen at six so far but intend to be up by five if we can wake as soon as we are dressed i take my bible out into the entry where there is a window in a quiet corner and read and think until louisa is ready to give me our room and take my place at nine we go into school where miss lord reads a prayer and from that hour until twelve we are engaged with our respective classes at twelve we have a recess of thirty minutes this over we return again to school where we stay until three when we are to dine all day saturday we are free this time we are to have monday too as a special holiday because of a great whig convention which is turning the city upside down there is one pleasant thing pleasant to me at least of which i want to tell you as mr Prasico is not a religious man i supposed we should have no blessing at the table and was afraid i should get into the habit of failing to acknowledge god there but i was much affected when on going to dine the first day i came he stood leaning silently and reverentially over his chair as if to allow all of us time for that quiet lifting up of the heart which is ever acceptable in the sight of god it is very impressive miss lord reads prayers at night and when mrs persico comes home we are to have singing that passage in the hundred and nineteenth psalm of which you speak is indeed delightful i will tell you what were some of my meditations on it i thought to myself that if god continued his faithfulness toward me i shall have afflictions such as i now know nothing more of than the name for i need them constantly i have trembled ever since i came here at the host of new difficulties to which i am exposed surely i did again and again ask god to decide the question for me as to whether i should leave home or not and believed that he had chosen for me it certainly was against my own inclinations october twelfth this morning i had a new scholar a pale thin little girl who stammers and when i spoke to her and she was obliged to answer the color spread over her face and neck as if she suffered the utmost mortification i was glad when recess came to draw her close to my side and tell her that i had a friend afflicted the same way and that consequently i should know how to understand and pity her she held my hand fast in hers and the tears came stealing down one after another as she leaned confidingly upon my shoulder and i could not help crying too with mingled feelings of gratitude and sorrow certainly it will be delightful to soothe and console this poor little thing you do not like poetry and i have spent the best part of my life in reading or trying to write it n p willis told me some years ago that if my husband had a soul he would love me for the poetical in me and advised me to save it for him october twenty seventh 
Sometimes, when I feel almost sure that the Savior has accepted and forgiven me, and that I belong to him, I can only walk my room repeating over and over again, How wonderful! And then, when my mind strives to take in this love of Christ, it seems to struggle in vain with its own littleness, and falls back weary and exhausted, to wonder again at the heights and depths which surpass its comprehension. If there is a spark of love in my heart for anybody, it is for this dear brother of mine, and the desire to have his education thorough and complete has grown with my growth. You, who are not a sister, cannot understand the feelings with which I regard him, but they are such as to call forth unbounded love and gratitude toward those who show kindness to him. November 3rd. I have always felt a peculiar love for the passage that describes the walk to Emmaus. I have tried to analyze the feeling of pleasure which it invariably sheds over my heart when dwelling upon it, especially upon the words, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And these, he made as though he would go further, but yielded to their urgent, Abide with us. This is one of the comforts of the Christian. God understands him fully, whether he can explain his troubles or not. Sometimes I think, all of a sudden, that I do not love the Savior at all, and am ready to believe that all my pretended anxiety to serve him has been but a matter of feeling and not of principle. But of late I have been less disturbed by this imagination, as I find it extends to earthly friends who are due to me as my own soul. I thought once yesterday that I didn't love anybody in the world, and was perfectly wretched in consequence. November 12th. The more I try to understand myself, the more I am puzzled. That I am a mixture of contradictions is the opinion I have long had of myself. I call it a compound of sincerity and reserve. Unless you see just what I mean in your own consciousness, I doubt whether I can explain it in words. With me it is both an open and a shut heart, open when and where and as far as I please, and shut as tight as a vice in the same way. I was probably born with this same mixture of frankness and reserve, having inherited the one from my mother and the other from my father. I have often thought that, humanly speaking, it would be a strange and surely a very sad thing if we none of us inherit any of our father's piety. For when he prayed for his children, it was undoubtedly that we might be very peculiarly the Lord's. H. was to be the missionary, but if he cannot go himself and is prospered in business, I hope he will be able to help send others. I have been frightened of late in thinking how little good I am doing in the world, and yet I believe that those who love to do good always find opportunities enough, wherever they are. Whether I shall do any here, I dare not try to guess. December 3rd. How I thank you for the interest you take in my Bible class. They are so attentive to every word I say that it makes me deeply feel the importance of seeking each of those words from the Holy Spirit. Many of them had not even a Bible of their own until now, nor were they in the habit of reading it at all. Among others there are two granddaughters of Patrick Henry. I wish I could give you a picture of them as they sit on Sabbath evenings around the table with their eyes fixed so eagerly on my face that if I did not feel the Lord Jesus was present I should be overwhelmed with confusion at my unworthiness. Mr. Persico is a queer man. Last Sabbath Miss L. asked him if he had been to church. Oui, mademoiselle, said he. Vous étiez à l'église de l'homme, moi j'étais à l'église de Dieu, dans le bois. Translation. You were at man's church, I was at God's church, in the woods. 
There is the bell for prayers. It is an hour since I began to write, but I have spent a great deal of it with my eyes shut because I happen to feel more like meditating than writing, if you know what sort of feeling that is. Oh, that we might be enabled to go onward day by day, and upward, too. I have been making violent efforts for years to become meek and lowly in heart. At present I do hope that I am less irritable than I used to be. It was no small comfort to me when Sister was home last summer to learn from her that I had succeeded somewhat in my efforts. But, though I have not often the last year been guilty of harsh speeches, I have felt my pride tugging with all its might to kindle a great fire when some unexpected trial has caught me off my guard. I am persuaded that real meekness dwells deep within the heart, and that is only to be gained by communion with our blessed Saviour, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. Sabbath evening, the eighth. I wanted to write last evening, but had a worse pain in my side and left arm than I have had since coming here. While it lasted, which was an hour and a half, I had such pleasant thoughts for companions as would make any pain endurable. I was asking myself if, supposing God should please suddenly take me away in the midst of life, whether I should feel willing and glad to go. And, oh, it did seem delightful to think of it, and to feel sure that, sooner or later, the summons will come. Those pieces which you marked in the observer I have read and like them exceedingly, especially those about growth and grace. You speak of the goodness of God to me in granting me so much of his presence, while I am here away from all earthly friends. Indeed, I want to be able to praise him, as I have never yet done, and I don't know where to begin. I have felt more pain in this separation from home on mother's account than any other, as I feel she needs me at home to comfort and to love her. Since she lost her best earthly friend, I have been her constant companion. I once had a secret desire for a missionary life, if God should see fit to prepare me for it. But when I spoke of it to mother, she was so utterly overcome at its bare mention that I instantly promised I would never, for any inducement, leave or forsake her. I want you to pray for me that if poor mother's right hand is made forever useless, I may after this year be a right hand for her and be enabled to make up somewhat to her the loss of it by affection and tenderness and sympathy. I don't remember feeling any way in particular when I first began to write for the press, as you call it. I never could realize that more than half a dozen people would read my pieces. Besides, I have no desire of the sort you express for fame. I care a great deal too much for the approbation of those I love and respect, but not a fig for that of those I don't like or don't know. End of chapter 2, part 1 of The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice. Recording by Teresa Downey.